Ron was right. This is really hard. So, And indeed, our God is great, is he not? So our scripture reading for today, ladies and gentlemen, are, we're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, this is not a test of whether or not you know where these passages are, but we will be reading from Luke, John, and Mark, and the, uh, the passages will be up on the screen. So our first scripture reading for today is from Luke 1, verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Our next uh, scripture passage is from John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Next from John 8, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And lastly from Mark 10, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time, so try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. 
Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. If you go ahead and stand, I'll give the benediction and we'll be dismissed. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Yeah, let's pray and we'll get right down to work uh, this morning. Father, uh, we're here to receive from you. We are your needy kids, and I would ask that you uh, please meet us here in your kindness and your mercy. Uh, give us a clear view of who you are in truth and beauty, uh, in, your, in your holiness. Uh, help us to see you as Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, light from light for our rescue. Father, for those who are here this morning who are weary and heavy laden, I pray that you would give them rest in Jesus. Help us all this morning to uh, lay down our burdens at your feet, to turn from our pride, our autonomy, our attempts at independence, and to run back to you, our creator, our rescuing king, and our kind and merciful son of David. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning is Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany is a date on the church calendar that helps followers of Jesus celebrate the beautiful truth that God the Father sent Jesus in pursuit of outsiders or people who were far away from him. The word epiphany simply means revelation to be able to see something clearly that you had never seen before. The lights have been turned on. For example, sometime during your, your stay here in Okinawa, your life here in Okinawa, you will have an epiphany or two. You will have an epiphany where suddenly, suddenly you see that indeed Family Mart's family chicken is actually superior to your Chick-fil-A. Like you will have this epiphany. 
at some point during your life here in Okinawa, you will have an epiphany that, wow, it would be incredibly life-giving for my family to reach out to the monitor or detailer and request a second set of orders back-to-back right here in Okinawa. These are epiphanies that you will have during your time uh, here with us. Epiphany. Uh, It's Epiphany Sunday. That's why we'll have our family feast. We celebrate that God the Father pursued us through Jesus the Son and opened our eyes through God the Holy Spirit. Those of us who were far away from him, outsiders. Epiphany Sunday is uh, the Sunday on the church calendar that celebrates It's 12 days past Christmas Day, and it celebrates the Magi, or the wise men, who were the first outsiders, the first Gentiles, to receive revelation, light turned on, that Jesus was the Son of God, their rescuing King, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people who were far from God. Epiphany Sunday. When I think of Epiphany Sunday, I always think of Luke chapter 2. Here it is on the screen for you. And this one line from Luke 2 that says, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's what we're celebrating. A light for revelation. Jesus is the light for revelation, for eyes to see, to have an epiphany and to be able to see the truth. Epiphany Sunday is the perfect Sunday to begin a series on the Nicene Creed. And let me just say, you're like, John, I thought, I thought we preached the Bible around here. We're doing a sermon series in the Creed? No, not really. What we're doing is we're going to have a sermon series that focuses on all of the biblical truths that are summarized in the Nicene Creed. So we're still going to preach from the Bible and through the Bible, but we want to show you this historical document and show you how every line in this creed is anchored in the truth of God's Word. So we are still preaching from God's Word, but as we do, we want to explore the Nicene Creed with you. And listen, it's perfect for Epiphany because the creed in its entirety is a summary of the revelation or the epiphany that we receive from God the Father through the work of the Spirit so that we can see with our eyes that Jesus is God and he is our rescuing king. It's the summary of the epiphany, if you will. And maybe my favorite line in the entire creed connects with Epiphany Sunday beautifully, and here it is. Uh, We believe in one God who is light from light. Now, very briefly, that phrase light from light is in there, as Ron said, and as the video taught us, they were addressing a problem where, where there was a low view of Jesus, that he was not of the same essence as the Father. So they're saying, God, the Father is light. Jesus, the Son, is light. He's light from light, same, different person, same essence, unity in the Trinity. But there's a beautiful truth there for us. God is light from light for our rescue. That's really good news, and Epiphany Sunday is all about good news. The good news is, as we heard John Shee read for us from, from Luke, we are a people who have been sitting in darkness and haunted by the shadows of death in a broken world. So the very truth that God is light from light, we could stop the sermon right there, and that's the only good news. That is the best good news that you could receive this morning. Darkness will not have the final say. Your midnight, your nighttime will not last forever. The God who is light from light for our rescue is breaking into that darkness and pushing it away. Light from light. 
couple years ago, I read a novel by Anthony Doerr. The title of that book is All the Light We Cannot See. Highly recommend the book. It tells the story of a few people in Europe during World War II. One of the, one of the persons at the center of the story is a young girl who is, who is blind. And so you follow her existence as a young blind girl groping her way through the horrors of World War II. At one point in the novel, the author writes this line. He says, open your eyes and see what you can with them before they close forever. Now, that's a deep line, thought-provoking, but, but the thought that it provokes for me as I read the book was, she's blind. She can open her eyes all she wants to. She's not going to see anything. Blind people don't regain their sight simply by opening their eyes. An epiphany needs to, to occur. Something needs to happen to them to give them sight to see. We'll sing a song towards the conclusion of our worship gathering entitled Son of David. And in that song is a lyrical line that simply says exactly what I just said in a different way. The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes, which gives way to our big idea for the morning. And here it is, if you'd like to jot it down. Our big idea is this. We sat in darkness. That was our pre-God existence. We sat in darkness. Doesn't matter how moral you were. Doesn't matter how ethically right you were. The Bible is very clear. We all, because of uh, Adam's rebellion from God, our inherited rebellion and our propensity towards our own rebellion, we sat in darkness. And in that darkness, we are haunted by the shadows of death. It's a haunted life. That's exactly what the Bible says for those of us who have lived, for all of us who have lived life away from God, that it is a life without hope. It's a life full of fear. There is a haunting because of the shadows in a life that is far from God. So we sat in darkness, haunted by the shadows of death until Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a work of the Trinity. Every member had to collaborate for our rescue until Father, Son, and Spirit broke in with the light of life. We're gonna break the sermon down into two parts this morning as we explore that big idea. Here are the two parts, a light history and a history of light. And by light history, I just wanna revisit the creed briefly one more time. I just wanna show you where it came from uh, why we have it and how it connects with uh, the good news of the gospel and light itself and how the creed should be a friend to us nearly 2,000 years after it was written. Wherever the creed is a friend to a Christian or a church, there is a healthy church and a healthy Christian. Wherever we forget our friendship with the creeds, which are summaries of the biblical truths, we begin to develop unhealth in our lives as followers of Jesus and in our lives together as a church. Okay, so light history and then history of light. I want to show you the framework of light in the Bible, the beginning, the end, the messy middle, and where we find our place in the history of light. Good? Should we put the big idea back up on the screen? We all good with that? I rambled a lot while that screen was up, so you should have that down, and here's the framework for our sermon. All right, ready for the light history? And it will be light. Here we go. The Nicene Creed. So you have this guy named Alexander. Alexander was a bishop of the perfect city for this guy. Like, his mom probably had this planned out. Anyone, anybody know where he was bishop? Alexandria, right? Perfect. So Alexander preaches a just a, a killer sermon on the unity of God, how God, the Father, Son, Spirit, same essence. There's unity in the Trinity. They're, every member is co-eternal. They've been around since eternity. They're not created. They are co-equal. They're equal to each other in godness and authority. So he's just crushing it on the unity of God in the Trinity. 
Well, so Arius throws down. Arius was a pastor who served in Alexandria. He was subordinate to Alexander, and he had a record of, he had a reputation of causing problems. It wasn't just that he had a problem with uh, Alexander. He just generally had problems with pastors and their sermons. So he picks a fight with Alexander, and he says, yo, Alexander, that's Sibelianism, which you heard that word in the video, right? You heard Sibelius. Uh, we don't really hear that word much anymore, but what you may hear is the word modalism. And modalism is the view that there is one God and not three distinct persons. Here's how it would play out. When God needs to be the father to you, well, he's the father. He shows up as dad. When God needs to be Jesus, maybe the gentle Jesus, the rescuing Jesus, the going to the cross Jesus, God shows up as Jesus, but he's not existing somewhere else as the father and the spirit at the same time. And when your heart needs to be touched and your eyes need to be opened and you need to be moved emotionally in these things, God shows up as the spirit. But when he's the spirit, there isn't a father somewhere and there isn't a son somewhere. So Arius is like, yo, uh, Alexander, you are, you're, 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 that's Sibelianism. Well, uh, Alexander hated conflict, so he, didn't, he did not get into the fight, but there was a deacon in the church whose name was Athanasius. He loved conflict. He loved conflict so much, he would eventually be exiled because he, if there was a fight, he was going to weigh in. So, man, you're attacking Athanasius' boy. Of course he's going to show up. And he's like, yo, Arius, Alexander's, that's not Sibelian. He's just teaching what the Bible says about the Trinity. And who are you anyway to criticize what somebody's uh, teaching about the Trinity. Um, we're naming a heresy after you. You get your own heresy. We're just going to call it Arianism. And what Arianism did, where Sibelianism uh, denied the distinction, or I'm sorry, it denied, yeah, the distinction among the members of the Trinity. Arianism swung the pendulum all the way in the other direction and denied, uh, denied the divinity. And so what Arius would say is, no, 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 no. Where you're saying there's just one God. There are definitely uh, three members in the Trinity, but there's God the Father and he's God, but Jesus is a created being. He's a really great almost God-like, but he's not equal with God. He's created. He's not been around forever. He's a created being. So there was a denial of the divinity. So this creates a mess in the church, and there are kind of two parties, like churches are being planted just like pillar, but one church is like Sibelian, just one God, um, not three distinct persons, and then another church starts, and their deal is, no, 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 three persons, but God, the Father's God, and uh, the, the Son is just created. And so a council is called, you've probably heard of the Council of Nicaea. 325, and there at that council, the focus was primarily on the person of Jesus, how he is him, in fact, God himself. And that's where the council, or that's where the Nicene Creed was born, the creed that we just recited. But because there was so much attention focused on the Son, the creed was really weak when it came to the person of the Holy Spirit. So it took them 60 years to kind of get this together and to figure it out. But in 381, they convene another council and they're like, hey, we need to fix this document and accurately represent what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Let's fix it. So the creed that we just read together is the finished form coming out of 381. And that's our light history. There, we did it, okay? Uh, we can all rest and take a deep breath now. Sermons are not supposed to be history lessons. But I wanted to show you that, con I wanted to show you that history, and I want to show you that in the same way that it mattered to Christians then, 1,700 years ago, it matters just as much to us now. We have not evolved. 
beyond a place of needing the creeds. We're not smarter than the Christians. Who, and honestly, you could probably argue that they were a touch smarter than we are now. They didn't have any smartphones or they didn't Google things, right? They either knew the answer or they went and found a book and they figured it out, right? So we could probably argue they're smarter. And if they were a little sharper and they were choosing to be dependent upon the creeds, what does that tell us if in our arrogance we have decided we don't need them anymore? Uh, so the creeds were a friend to the church and Christians then, and they should be a friend to us now. Why should they be our friend? They need to be our friend to remind us that Jesus is light from light, that he is our light, that you cannot find a substitute light that is more culturally relevant in our society today. There will, never be, there will be lots of substitute lights and pseudo lights, but there's only one true light. So we need the creed to be our friend and to hold our hand to keep us anchored in the truth, because if we're not anchored in the truth, we will drift with the times and we will become irrelevant. In fact, if we don't hold tightly to the creed's hand and we just drift with the cultural winds, uh, in our quest for relevance, we actually become irrelevant. That's the, uh, the beautiful reality about the nature of the gospel. If we try to be a relevant people to the culture, we lose all relevance. If we commit ourselves to stay anchored to the truth, we will never become irrelevant as followers of Jesus because the gospel always has a relevant word for any issue, any matter going on in the culture. So it should be our friend that way. It should also be our friend to keep us uh, rooted into orthodoxy or right thinking about who God is. We're not smart enough to figure out new or better. Uh, Christianity is not reinvented with each generation. It's received. It was once handed down from Jesus through the apostles and handed down to us through the word of God. We receive it and discover it, but we don't reinvent it or rewrite it or improve upon it. It is what it is. You know, like, yeah, John, I'm still not convinced all right, fine. Let me just give you two brief examples before we close the page on light history and move to history of light. Here's one. This is a quote from an article that I just read on Grid News. It came out in December, so it's a very recent article. And what they were talking about, they're not really picking, I know it looks like they're picking on the Episcopal Church, but really the focus of the article was like, yo, Gen Zers and millennials, and what are all you, what, what, uh, yeah, Gen Z, right? What's the next one? Below Gen Z. Okay, good, we're on the same page. So all of us, everybody under 40, like there's this mass exodus from the church. What's going on? Part of the reason there is a mass exodus is because we let go of our friendly grip to the historic creeds. That's a big reason why there's a mass exodus. And so the authors say, hey, if you look at the Episcopal church, which has changed along with the culture, right? Letting go of the, the friendly hand of the creeds, changing with the culture, its numbers are absolutely tanking, said Bullivant, the expert they were consulting. Uh, uh, Bullivant's a, a Catholic professor. Churches shifting with the times doesn't seem to fill the pews. Uh, that's very, very true. Uh, what we're seeing is just one example of how when a church um, when a church decides to pursue relevancy, you, they will always become irrelevant, right? But when a church is committed to remaining anchored in the historic apostolic Catholic faith handed down to us through the creeds, rather than pursuing relevance, we always remain relevant because the word of God itself, as we have received it, is a relevant word, right? It doesn't need to be made relevant. Here's just one more example that may actually come as a surprise to you 
We need the creeds to hold our hands so that we don't wander off into false views or misunderstandings of who God is. Uh, don't hate on me, but I was actually watching uh, uh, Jurassic Park Dominion or Jurassic World Dominion this morning. Yes, this morning with my middle son. We were just trying to prepare our hearts for worship. And, uh, and they're at the park and the guy's giving this lecture and he's like, hey, yo, uh, uh, human beings have no right to safety and security, no more right than anything else in nature. And hence the title Dominion. He's like, and by the way, humans have no dominion over this world. I'm like, whoa, yeah, we do. And I stopped her right there and I'm like, Johnny, did you hear what he just said? He's like, yeah, I heard him. What does that, what's dominion mean? So we talked about it. I'm like, let's, let's look, what did God say in Genesis when he created the world? You have dominion over what I have created. Um, not a selfish dominion, but an exercise of authority and power for the good and the flourishing of all created things, right? Guys, if we're not anchored in the truth, we will just shift, shift, shift and drift with the culture. Here you go. Check this out. This is a research project that was, uh, it was a collaborative effort. Ligonier was involved, a few others. The article that I took this image from is in Christianity Today. I'm really sorry, that's hard to read. Uh, at the top it says Jesus is a created being and it says the percentage of evangelicals who agree Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Look at that number, 73%. So three quarters of you believe that Jesus was created by God the Father. You're like, Arius died a long time ago, and Arianism's a piece of history. These things don't matter. No, that's three quarters of Christians in America are Arians. They have embraced Arianism, whether they know it or not. That Jesus is just a good guy created, but not actually God himself. Well, I got news for you. If Jesus is, God, is not God, he cannot be our substitute, and he cannot be your savior. And there, you have not received an epiphany. You're still blind and lost in darkness and apart from God and hopeless in this world. It matters that Jesus is God. One more. Uh, this one uh, at the top, it says, Jesus was just a teacher. And I'm really sorry, it's so small. It says, percentage of evangelicals who agree Jesus was a great, great teacher, but he was not God, 43%. So if you walk down the streets in America, almost half of confessing Christians would agree with the statement that Jesus is not God. Guys, the creeds were a friend to the church nearly 2,000 years ago. They have never stopped being our friend. We may have stopped being her friend, uh, but it matters deeply to us as followers of Jesus as a church that we are friends with the creeds and familiar with them. And let me just say this to you, it matters to you deeply, personally, as a follower of Jesus, that you yourself are familiar with the content of the creeds and that you make them your friends so that they can serve you. You don't serve them, they serve you. They keep you anchored in the truth. They remind you daily that Jesus is your light and that protects you from chasing, wasting your life chasing substitute light or believing the religion of our culture that you can be your own light. You can't. Jesus is light from light. The creed will be your friend because she will keep you anchored in the truth of the gospel and God's word for your good and for your flourishing and so that you will have a right view of God. And listen, well, last thing I'll say, I'll get off my, this piece and we'll move on, I promise. Only when you have a right view of God can you have a right view of yourself. In an absence of a right view of God, you can never understand who you are as a person, why you were created, what will bring you meaning and purpose, what a well-lived life is 
what true justice is, what true beauty is, what true life, nothing. That all starts with a right view of God, and that's exactly the gift that a friendship with the creeds will give a church and will give a Christian. All right, we got to press on. Let's close the page on a light history. You're like, John, that was a lie. Rename that subpoint. There was, that was not a light history. We're stepping out of the classroom. Let's look at the uh, history of light. And as we do, let's just revisit our big idea uh, one more time just to make sure we're still tracking. We sat in darkness, haunted by shadows of death until Father, Son, and Spirit broke in with the light of life. And here is that history of light. Um, in 1 John, we have this simple but prof profound statement. Here it is. It says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. So all of scripture is written with the assumption that God himself is light. Not that he has light, but that he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, depending on the context of where you're reading about God's light, that could mean probably three different things. And here they are for you if you want to write them down. That is a theological statement. It's a statement of origin. And it's a statement of ethics. Let's hit, so hit those very briefly. What do you mean statement of theology? Well, I mean this. When we read that God is light, very often that's Scripture's way of speaking of his holiness, which would be his otherness. He's light in a way that we never will be. He is, we'll see later on that God dwells or lives in an unapproachable light. Okay, that's his godness being spoken about. So when we see that God is light, it's another way of saying that God is God and we are not and we never will be. So for those of us with Mormon friends who are involved with ongoing conversations with the differences between Christianity and Mormonism, I'm not hating on, uh, I, I love Mormons and I have Mormon friends. My, one of my best friends while I was a Marine was a devout Mormon, beautiful man. But that's a key difference between Mormonism and Christianity, okay? Um, God himself is light and we never will be God. We will never have that same essence as God himself. So he's holy, he's different. It also uh, refers to his... Uh, his purity as God. You, we saw that in 1 John. He's light, and in him is no darkness at all, right? So it's a statement of theology. It's also a statement of origin, because just as it's a statement about the character or the essence of God, it's a statement about life. Very often, light in the Bible is a synonym for life. How does that apply to us in 2023? Well, it means this. Um, it means God is life. All life originated in him. He is the author of all life and the creator of every living thing. So it's a statement of your own origin. It's where you come from, right? You come from the God who, who is himself life. When, when we read that God is light, it's saying that God is life. It's a, it is the Bible's way of making a truth claim as it relates to the origins of the universe and your own origin as a human being created in the image of God. So there are real implications for us there spiritually as well, because what is, how, how is our life lived? Like all the time we wake up and we feel empty inside. There's something not quite right about life. So we set out in the pursuit of finding life. And where do we look? In everyone or everything other than God. And we don't find it. We find substitutes and pseudo life we make really poor life choices, we suffer consequences, we're hurt by people, and we hurt other people, when all along God himself is the one who is the life and can satisfy every single desire or longing that's in our hearts. So this still matters today. 
Uh, it's also a statement of ethics. If it's not talking about the theology, like who God is or life, uh, light can also be used synonymously for what is right, what is just, what is beautiful, and maybe most powerfully, what is truth. So God is the God is life and is the or originator of life. God Himself is truth and is the originator of all truth. There isn't truth that exists in the world that didn't exist or didn't come to be apart from God. So again, uh, this matters so much to us. I think, man, we recently have talked about deconstruction, and it ma many of you need to deconstruct, not in an unhealthy way, but uh, maybe a better word is disentangle. There's so much about your faith experience that needs to be disentangled from healthy expre unhealthy expressions of the church, or perhaps unhealthy professed but disingenuous followers of Jesus in your life that have muddied the waters of Christianity for you. Uh, the creed will be your friend as you, if you want to if you want to disentangle and deconstruct in a life-giving way, in a healthy way, hold the hands of the creed and go, go at it. Deconstruct. And it will constantly pack, point you back to these, uh, the theology, the origin, and the ethics of God as light. So God himself is light. Let's kind of look at the narrative through the Bible very briefly. Very briefly. This will be a summary. Not, we won't look at the whole thing. But I just want to show you how the, the storyline of the Bible begins with light and concludes with light, but in the middle, it's a messy midnight. We'll just call it that, okay? Here's Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says, this was his first command, and God said what? Light into the darkness, life where there was no life. Well, let's start, let's go back to our order, right? We had a theological statement. So the presence of God, where the presence of God was not already known, okay? There's our theology statement. Now let's move to the origin statement, life where there was no life, right? Now let's move to the ethical statement, justice. There will be justice. There will be beauty. There will be truth. It's noble truth, right? Let there be light. And the darkness is pushed back and life explodes. Now we can look at the conclusion of the story in Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible. And it says this, and night will be no more they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. His presence is the light, the life, the beauty, the truth that we need. We don't need anything other than God. We just need God himself. And they will reign forever and ever. So there's a beginning and there's the end, but in the middle, a messy, dark and long midnight. Uh, we heard John read that from Luke. In the middle, though it began with light and will conclude with light, and we, read, we heard it read, the darkness will not overcome God's light. In the middle, uh, a, a people who sit in the darkness of night haunted by the shadows of death. Now, what I want to show you now uh, is, is the different ways in which the members of the Trinity express this light. Here are the statements that I want you to see. The Father is light. The Son is light, and the Spirit is light. They all have the same essence. Each are co-equal, co-eternal members. They're God. The Spirit is God. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father, right? Three distinct persons. The Father has a distinct role. He sends the light. The Spirit, or the Son, is the light who is sent, and He shines the light. And the Spirit's role in all of this 
is to open our eyes so we can see the light who has been sent by the one who is the light. Let me just show you this from the Bible. Here's a statement from 1 John. It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. It was an expression of God's love that he chased you with his light. God is chasing you with his light not to punish you, not to burn you, not to... Um, not to, to, to drive you into the ground, but as an expression of his love for your life. So the Father sends, the Spirit shines. Two verses that I want to show you. The first one is in Hebrews. It goes like this. Jesus is the radiance. There's a light word, right? Radiating. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the light of the Father made visible. We wouldn't know God and we couldn't see God if Jesus had not come to show us who God is and that God exists. One more about Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.16 says uh, that God dwells in unapproachable light and that is the beauty of epiphany. The one who is unapproachable by us chose in love to approach those of us living in darkness and to give us the light of life. One quick statement on the spirit, here it is. Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having, so we, we receive the spirit, we saw that in verse 17, when we have the spirit, the eyes of our hearts, there's a seeing, are enlightened, they're open, they see the light. And when we see the light, we know what is the hope to which he has called us and what are the riches of his inheritance, his glorious inheritance in the saints. We need the Father and we need him to send the Son. We need the Son to show us the light and we need to shine the light and we need the Spirit to show us the light. Otherwise, we don't see. So that's a light history of the creed and the statement light from light coupled with a history of light as it relates to the narrative of light in the Bible. But that leaves us with a question like, great, what's my place in that story? And I want to close with this. I want to read for us a story that, that helps us find our place in the history of light. John read it. I think it's important for us to hear it one more time. This is in Mark 11, Mark 10. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd of people, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, we don't use that title, Son of David. Sadly, we should. It's a beautiful title. Let me just briefly what it means. Son of David means the promised good king who heals and rescues his people. A kind king who rescues and restores his people. The, story, the history of Israel was a history of failed king after failed king after failed king. Kings living for their own glory, their own fame, their own good, and using their subjects along the way. Jesus was the true and better son of David, the first king out of all the kings to live at his own expense for the good of his people, to reconcile them to the father and to restore them, uh, to restore their health. So son of David, kind king, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said to the crowd, call him. Love that. Crowds yelling against him, and Jesus says just two words, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, hey, take, take heart. Get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Well, what does a blind man want to be done to him? I want to see. Let me see. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Uh, just a word about faith. Uh, some of you may be in here and you're like, well, I don't have the faith for that. Um, yeah, you do. Um, everybody in this world has faith. Religious people have faith. Irreligious people have faith. Christians have faith. Muslims have faith. Buddhists have Everybody's got faith. Atheists have faith. The difference between, the difference, the single difference is the object of your faith. When Jesus, who is the son of David, is the object of your faith, you will be made well by your faith in Jesus. But he is the only son of David in the universe. He is the only kind and merciful king who is God himself and who is able to heal. So this world and my heart are full of substitute son of David's. You know your own heart's full of them. You chase them Monday through Friday. You repent of them on Saturday. You show up guilty to church on Sunday. You hear a sermon, you're like, I'm going to do that. And then on Monday, you start chasing your substitute pseudo son of David's again, and they don't heal you. And you know it. Like, you don't need me to sit up here and berate you for it. Like, that's the story of all of our lives. When the object of your weak faith is Jesus, the son of David, you will be made well. Weak faith, imperfect faith, childlike faith. You, ha you have that faith. Guys, blind people don't gain their sight by opening their eyes. And the story of the Bible is that we are, we are all blind people. We read a story like this and we're tempted to be like, wow. What a nice Jesus. He healed that man's blindness. Nice Jesus. What a good story about Jesus. I'd be so sad if that's how we walked away from a story like that. We're not meant to walk away saying, nice Jesus. You're meant to walk away saying, I need Jesus. You're not meant to walk away saying, wow, Jesus healed a man's blindness. You're meant to walk away saying, I need Jesus to heal my blindness. I am stuck in the long, dark midnight of the in-between, and I need somebody, the son of David, to break in and break up the darkness and start pushing it back. So some of you need to cry out to the son of David for the first time ever. But there's never a day in your life that you have to stop calling out for the son of David. Because while he sets you free from the darkness and gives you the light of life, you still live in a world where we spend a lot of time sitting in darkness and haunted by the shadows of death that surround us. That's why God would say, hey, read my word. It's a what? It's a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Every single day we need the light that comes only from the son of David. I wonder who are your substitute son of David's? Who are your pseudo son of David's? On the days you don't cry out to Jesus, who do you cry out to? Or on the days you don't cry out to Jesus and your mouth is silent, what's the hope in your heart? I'm just telling you as a friend and as a brother, 
as a fellow struggler who wrestles hard in the darkness and honestly taps out in the darkness way too often. Forget wrestling. Man, I need the son of David. I just want to close and leave you with this. This is in verse 49. Jesus looked at Bartimaeus and he, uh, the crowd, because Jesus said, call him. And so the crowd looks at Bartimaeus and they say, take heart, get up. He is calling you. So what's your place in the story of light? Your place is that you sit in darkness. You're haunted by the shadows of death. But in the same personal way that Jesus went to Jericho for Bartimaeus, he broke into this world for you. And you are in this room this morning so that you will hear Jesus' voice again because he's calling you. So take heart. Yes, you're in darkness. Yes, life hurts and it's hard. And there will be shadows until the grave. Take heart. You're not, there's not something different about you that's not true about the rest of us. Every Christian in here wrestles with the darkness, but take heart. Take heart because the son of David looks in every one of your eyes and speaks into every one of your souls. I'm calling you this morning. Take heart. Get up. Stand up and call out his name because Jesus, the son of David, is the merciful king who enjoys delights, giving mercy to those who need it most. So when your midnight is the darkest, that's where Jesus' mercy will be the deepest. Let's stand, let's pray, and grant the team will come and lead us in response. Father, the history lesson aside, the journey through the story of light in the Bible aside, help us to see that you are the son of David, light from light. And that every one of us needs to call out to you initially for rescue from the darkness. But Father, please strip away the pride, the arrogance, the independence, the self-righteousness, the religiosity, the naivety that keeps us from opening our mouth and crying out, son of David. Father, there isn't a person in this room who doesn't need mercy from you this morning. We all need more kindness. Everybody needs more kindness. So Father, for those who sit in the darkness and are haunted by the shadows of death, give them a voice in this song to cry out to the Son of David. And Son of David, be near. Give an epiphany. Give light. Give life. Give beauty. Restore beauty. Give truth. Help us to see you and to be like Bartimaeus. We cannot gain our sight by opening our eyes, but we can for sure stand up and call your name. Show us mercy. And we pray in the name of the Son of David. Amen.